Welcome to Knock On Podcast, where we bring you archery information and education that you can trust. Knock On was created as a way to bring all archers together, regardless of the brand you choose or the style of archery you shoot. Knock On Podcasting will deliver professional insights to the latest gear, proper shooting technique, along with high-level equipment setup and tuning. Whoa, dang, it's been forever since I heard that intro. I almost forgot how to do it. In fact, I did forget how to do the intro to the podcast. I've got this cool roadie podcast deck that my buddy Andy Stumpf gave me. And yeah, it's just like anything. If you don't use it, you forget how to use it. So I tried to start this podcast a minute ago, actually 60 seconds ago to the number and hit the wrong button and was some real lame song that I think Andy pre-recorded in there just to freak me out. But anyway, welcome back to Knock On Podcast. I have no idea what number it is. Uh, I just know this. It's December 21st. Hunting season technically is over, although officially it opened today. Late season here in Iowa opened today. And right now I should be in my stand, but no, I'm here for the knock on nation podcasting. It was an awesome day, but we've got stuff to do. And although I do have one late season tag left one, well, one buck tag, I do have some doe tags I haven't filled and some turkeys too, but the buck tag, I'm going to save that for a new release, which I'm sure we'll talk about. I wanted this first podcast since really the fall hunting season kicked off because as much as I wanted to bring podcasts out and although I did travel with my gear some, honestly, I just freaking, I was in the rut guys and gals. I was just loving it. I was enjoying the hunting season, enjoying all the friends and people that were with me the entire step of the way and I just I don't know I wanted to just live it and love it and I did it was an amazing year and I'm sure we'll touch on a lot of those things especially as these hunts get edited and as more of these adventures get brought to all of you out there I think you're gonna appreciate just I don't know the fact that Although I should have stayed connected, I still did what I'm passionate about, and that's just love being in the moment and loved being out there and really didn't want to miss this chance with some of my friends. Obviously, 2020 has been a crazy year for a lot of people, but um, it's also been a good opportunity to, to take advantage of the people around you and enjoy those moments. And I think this year, more than any, people just really appreciated being out. They loved it, and I don't know, the camps that I was in, people really spent time together and enjoyed that fellowship and just kind of talked about how bound up they were for the rest of the year, so I think it it, uh, it was pretty cool. But for this first podcast, I made a post on Instagram asking you to let me know what you wanted to talk about, and we kind of can't hit on all of them because we don't have hours and hours and hours and hours to be here to hit on all of them, but we are definitely going to hit on some of the ones. And honestly, they weren't ones I personally picked because I left it in the hands of the team to just 
say, hey, if you see some questions out there that you think are good that we should talk about that aren't necessarily ones that are specific to us, but are ones that maybe you haven't heard other podcasts talking about because we've got a pretty cool team here at HQ. They do listen to a lot of podcasts and I don't know, I like their advice. So let's jump into it. All right. Question number one is from Fran C. McGee, but with a lot of underscores in there, saying how to anchor for different yardages, um, how to not change hand angle, but still make it feel similar to the other yardages. So, yeah, for all those out there who are starting to shoot longer distances for the first time are probably starting to realize that as you go from a close yardage to a further yardage, what happens is obviously your sight has to continually go down closer to your arrow the further you shoot. So depending on where you've kind of set your most comfortable place when it comes to your peep height location. So if you're going to an archery shop, a lot of archery shops have a 20 yard indoor range. So they'll kind of just move your site about to where most of their customers are shooting 20 yards accurately. They'll get that sight right there and then they'll have you draw back with your eyes closed and they'll have you anchor properly and they'll have you open your eyes and then they'll kind of say, where, where does your peep need to be so that you can see that front sight? And then they'll put that peep in there and then they'll fine tune that front sight so that you're hitting accurately at that distance. Now, if that's 20 yards, then what you'll find is once you get, if you're super comfortable at 20, the further down you go in, you know, the range of moving that site lower, then kind of the harder it's going to be to get a perfect well, to get a perfectly comfortable front sight, rear sight picture is the further out you go for distance. And one of the things that target archers used to do was we would try to figure out, okay, if we're shooting an event where, for example, uh, feet of field where you're going to be shooting 10 meters to 60 meters, you would try to find that position where in between at the middle distances or 40 to 40, you know, right around 40 meters or 44 yards, you would kind of figure out where your site needs to be in that, that area. And then you would kind of adjust your peep to where you would feel most comfortable looking through that peep site when your site was in that approximate position when it came to up and down and it worked out really good because that way when you shot a closer distance you didn't feel like you were having to to like smash your face too hard into the string so in other words if you imagine looking through a keyhole if you were in a fixed position looking through a keyhole and someone on the other side was holding an object up higher by by an inch you know, you might have to kind of bend your head down and look up through that keyhole in order to see that object. Um, 
or if they move that object down, you know, you might have to kind of raise your head up a little bit so you could look down through there. And that's what's happening when you're adjusting your front sight. Your front sight is higher at the closer distances, but much lower at the longer distances. So you kind of want to find that place where you feel better all the time and not lost at some of the distances. Now, people that set their sights at 20 yards where their their anchor position is really secure and they're looking through their peep perfect and their sights set to where at 20 yards, they just feel 100% comfortable. By the time you get to 100 yards and you've moved your sight down, you know, two and a half or three inches, you're going to feel like you're just floating in order to look through that peep properly to see that front sight. So what I like to do is, depending on what my average yardage is, that's kind of where I try to be the most comfortable. Now, for me personally, um, like in a whitetail scenario, my peep will be, you know, a little bit different than what it will if I'm going to a target event where I know that I'm going to be shooting shots that are like 80, 90, 100 yards a lot. So, for example, at the TAC events, my peep sight will actually be a little bit different. It'll be slightly lower for me anyway at those total archery challenge events because I know the average shot is much longer. Um, And so I don't want to feel like I'm just floating for an anchor position at those longer yardages. Whereas in a hunting situation, um, I'm probably going to set my peep to where I'm most comfortable somewhere around that 35 to 40 yard mark, just so that I'm still comfortable at 20 and I'm still comfortable at 60. But I'm also super comfortable with that 40, which between Western hunting and whitetail hunting seems to be a very good number. Now, one of the things that I'll do in relation to my technique that helps this is, um, so as you shoot further distance, a lot of times if your jaw is tight, so if your teeth are clamped together, and you have your anchor position where I teach, which is your index finger under your jaw, middle finger right above that jawline, you'll find that if you did shoot a longer distance, you'd feel like you were kind of floating with your anchor position kind of away from your jawline a little bit or having to not really be tight on that jaw in order to look down through that peep to see that pin that's much closer to your arrow at that distance. So what I do is I start to relax my jaw at those longer distances so that I can still feel a very consistent anchor position, but also still be able to have good arrow clearance on my face and then the string at the tip of my nose and then obviously still looking through that peep sight. If you keep your jaw really tight at those longer distances, you'll feel like your anchor is almost off your jaw and having to be a little bit low so you can look down through that peep to that to that lower distance. But if you just relax your jaw a little bit, so if you look at some of the shots of me shooting at those longer distances, my jaw is a little bit more open. And you can kind of see like I'm trying to catch flies in my mouth. And really that's because I want to make sure I'm feeling that anchor position correctly on my face. 
before I acquire the peep sight. So a really important part of my shooting process and, you know, my shooting steps is to always anchor first and then acquire your peep after because the importance of anchor position being the same all the time has an immediate effect on arrow position on the face and how that arrow is on your face will really determine kind of pre-direction of that arrow. Um, This is also really true when it comes to the wrist strap release. Uh, We do have a new wrist strap coming out, spoiler alert, for those who haven't seen some of the teasers that I've put out on on social media in the last week here. Um, But yeah, I really talk about that in this new video series that'll be coming out with the wrist strap release on how to properly shoot it. I talk about the importance of anchor position, how that immediately affects your arrow pressure on your face and and more importantly groups down range so by relaxing that jaw and anchoring first meaning index finger right under that jawline middle finger right above the jawline allows that arrow position to be the same which is between the lip and the chin bone it allows that to be the same and then once you've anchored at that time, then you adjust your head to where you're looking properly and centering front sight, rear sight. So for me, the my peep is always adjusted so that the string is at the, the tip of my nose um, after my anchor position. But, you know, this is a big reason why I'm... I've never been a big fan of kisser buttons. I'm also not a fan of anything that takes away from the anchor position first because it's critical that you anchor using your release hand and finding that proper position and light, light pressure on the face and then adjusting your head to where you're properly centering front sight rear sight and many times depending on the distance that you're shooting you might have to have more pressure a little bit more pressure on the string especially if you're shooting a closer distance where your sight is higher up versus when your sight is lower down you'll have slightly less pressure when it comes to nose pressure on the string um, which is also a reason why there's certain things out there that aren't a hundred percent, I guess, in my ballpark, because depending on your distance, depending on your speed, especially if you're someone that shoots lower poundage or, or lower weight and who has a much wider sight scale than another person, or if you're someone who shoots your sight way far out in front of your bow, um, in that case, your sight scale will be bigger too. So the bigger that sight scale is, the more your nose pressure might have to slightly change on the string depending on how much you have to lower your head onto that string so that your front sight, rear sight is properly acquired. But the short answer to your question, Frank, well, maybe it's just Frank. I guess it was Frank. I said Fran K. McNee, but it's Frank McGee uh, is 
just relax your mouth and pretend like you're catching some flies in your mouth if you're shooting those longer distances and that way you can feel like you're anchoring the same but you're still able to acquire that front sight rear sight the way that you need to all right so next question is from i don't know how all these are pronounced it's always kind of a I don't know. This is, I'm going to say Krodz, K-R-O-D-Z, 111, is saying, uh, tell me about yoke tuning on the new system for the Embark bow. So the Embark is a brand new bow that we released with PSE about uh, two weeks ago, I guess now. And this is an awesome bow that's focused on that you know, under $800 price range, which I think is a really, it's kind of a really important number when it comes to guys and gals that walk into an archery shop that say, this is what my budget is. I've got this much to spend, or let's just say they see a flagship model that's, you know, 12, most flagship models are anywhere from 11 to 1500. Let's just say they see a flagship model and they say, okay, I really want that bow, but I won't be able to put the right accessories on it. You know, by the time I put all the right accessories on it, you know, now I'm, now that's close to two grand. I don't really have that. So at the 799 mark, which is pretty much like the, the lowest minimum advertised price for the Embark, you're now able to get a bow to where you can put premium accessories on it, which I think are critical to accuracy. And you can have a bow that's technically as good as that bow can possibly be where if you have a flagship bow but you take a step back on the accessories that you put on it the problem there is the accessories start to quickly take the accuracy back down even though the bow is capable more you don't necessarily get it because you know if you have something that's plastic, something that doesn't tighten down, that's repeatable every time. If you have an arrow that's not, doesn't have a good straightness to where, you know, the six arrows that are in your quiver are all slightly different, you know, either spine stiffnesses or the straightnesses or are, you know, varied, then your accuracy isn't going to be as superior as that bow is capable of. So, you limit yourself always by the quality of your accessory. So this bow, and I won't go into the detail about it for this particular question, but this bow is coming in at a price range to where it's under 800 bucks. So one of the benefits to that new bow is a brand new, um, let's see, it's PBTS. So it's called the Precision bus tuning system and this is a brand new um, piece that goes on a standard split yoke cable so if you think about the bows that are on the market a long time ago cables they came up from the bottom cam and they just split like a y okay and then as cam systems have evolved what's happened is the cam systems now have like cable take-ups on both sides of the axle so there had to be these systems that properly split the cable in two and made it wide enough to where the string track 
of the cam had clearance between that cable. So if you look at a lot of new bow, bow cam systems on the market, they have this small little bracket that allows the cables to be wider instead of being a, a simple Y to where they're narrow at the bottom and they, they gradually get, you know, get wider towards the top, which was fine when they went to the outside of the limb. Um, but now the, those same yokes, they attach to the cam system, which helps the cams perfectly mirror each other. So what one cam's doing, the other one's doing. And because they're not getting split as wide apart, there has to be some type of a device that allows them to be wide enough to where that cam itself can move past it down at the split. So PSE came out with a brand new system um, and we patented it called a PVTS. And what that does is it takes that standard Y yoke system and it, it splits it apart and then allows it to cross itself and then split back apart even wider after it crosses itself one time, which is pretty awesome. One of the reasons it's awesome is because you no longer have to have a secondary small uh, cable that goes from the cam on one side down through this bracket up to the cam on the other side. It allows one singular cable. But one of the more critical things is in relation to this question, and that is, you know, how does this new system help you yoke tune? So one of the things that you can do for tuning a bow is adjusting that Y split which is on the cable on a lot of hybrid type bows like my old Hoyts it would be on the top only now some like a two cam system you would have a split on the top and the bottom but one of the things that's awesome about being able to yoke tune so in other words you can imagine a Y if you twist one side of that Y up or if you let twists out, it will either shorten one side of that Y or it will lengthen one side of that Y. If you add twists as you twist it and the shorter that gets, obviously it'll get shorter quicker. Um, whereas if you let twists out, it'll lengthen. So what that does is because that Y is going to two different sides of the center line of that cam, if one is getting shorter than the other at a different rate, it'll cause that cam to slightly turn or it'll change the cam lean in the system. Now, this is important because on a compound bow, remember, no matter what kind of bow you have, well, there's one model out there on the market that this isn't relevant to, but for the most part, most bows have either a cable rod or a roller guard or some type of a system that takes the cables that are normally right down the middle of the bow and it pulls them over to the side. So that way, as the string throws your arrow through that, that riser down the center, your cables aren't sitting there in the way to where the arrows are going to hit them. 
So you have some type of a system that pulls those two cables off to the side. Now, when that happens, you can imagine if you have a Y and you pulled on the bottom side of that Y, if you look at a, a letter Y, and if you pull on the bottom of it, whichever way you pull it, that opposite side is going to come down faster than the side closest to where you're pulling it. So like, for example, if you're a right-handed shooter and you're shooting um, a compound bow and the cable system is pulling your cables to the right so that it's out of the way of your arrow, what happens is there's actually more pressure on the top left side of that cable or that Y yoke than there is on the top right because it's again it's getting pulled to the right so that far opposite side is going to be getting more pressure on it so what you have to do is a lot of times this the side that's closest to where it's being pulled over to will need to have more twists in it so that you're shortening that up to balance that load so that it's essentially you're you're making that y perfectly balanced so for a lot of bows that had like a hybrid type system and again i'm going to use hoyt as an example just because that's what a lot of you know that i shot for 10 years when you take a new hoyt out of the package you'll notice that if you're a right-handed shooter the top right yoke will have more twists in it than the top left and that's because it's being pulled over to the right so it needs a few more twists so that it's perfectly balanced at full draw. Now on these systems that split to where you have one string that goes from one side of the cam down through some type of a bracket and then up to the other side of the cam, what happened with those is because it was one singular system, if you twisted one side, it just balanced itself out to the other side. So you were really never able to properly quote unquote yoke tune because you weren't changing the length of one side versus the other because if you look at um for example if you look at like the newer hoyts um where it has down on the bottom there's a small little piece that separates um the the cable it keeps it wide enough down there at the bottom and that cable goes from one side of the cam up and over to the other side of the cam if you twisted that piece because that piece is one single piece and then there's a bracket connecting it to another singular piece, you don't have any type of change or adjustment from that. Whereas with this new system, the PBTS, it's, it's a standard Y system. It's not an individual system that's feeding through that. So if you twist one side of the Y, those twists will respond and what you're doing by by making those adjustments is you're actually changing the length of one side of that y which then changes your cam position or your cam lean or kind of the position of your split limb system and what's critical about this is depending on where that that cam is sitting between those two limbs and depending on that cam's spacing between those two limbs 
or how much poundage you shoot or how far you pull the bow back or um, how much natural hand torque you have, all those things start to immediately show up in relation to how that string travels forward through that riser and how the the cam position within the limb, the torque of the cable guard, the front torque of your bow hand position, all that starts to immediately show up when it comes to shooting your arrow through a piece of paper because that paper is going to show an arrow tear, whether it's to the right or to the left. And a lot of companies out there, Matthews included, um, even on some of the older ho- the older Hoyts, um, even on the PSEs, sometimes you can get a tear that instead of moving your arrow rest too much to get rid of that paper tear, you could actually just shim your cam one side or the other, and it would allow you to keep your arrow rest down the center of the riser. It'd allow you to keep your sight down the center of that riser. And it w- overall, it would just have a way better appearance. Like when you're looking down it, everything would track down the middle. And like with Matthews, they would supply these little cam barrels that the dealer could take the cam out of the limbs and they could change these these barrels and they could shim the cam to the left or to the right to where the end user could always have a perfectly center tune where the string and the arrow rest and the arrow are running right down the center of the riser. Now, with some of these systems that did not allow for either cam adjustment or yoke tuning, um, which some of these new split harness systems don't allow for, um, you would have to actually remove the cam and shim the cam one way or another by moving those spacers to then get your end result. Now with this new Embark and the PBTS, you can actually just put twists onto your split yoke on the top or bottom limb and you can actually change your paper tear just from adding or taking twists out of that split yoke system which was awesome Um, and again I know a lot of this is maybe a little advanced for newer listeners which is why I'm trying to kind of explain more down this this rabbit hole but um, it allows the end user to make these adjustments without actually having to um, remove the strings and cables take the cam out of the limbs put one of the cam shims to one side to shift it over and then you know set it back up again to where it was working through the tests that we've did here we were able to change a quarter inch of paper tear to the left or to the right simply by making yoke adjustments to this pbts which is awesome so um that's a really cool system it honestly takes um a bow like the embark um, and allows you to make some of these critical tuning adjustments without having the without the dealer really a lot of times it's the it's the dealer that makes these adjustments without the dealer having to remove the cam from the from the limbs and then you know change the spacers a little bit so like on the PSEs, 
you'll have a thick spacer on one side and a really thin spacer on that same side normally from the box and then there's kind of a medium sized spacer on the left side of the cam and this is for a right-handed shooter so if you ever had a pse where um or like for example with an ntn depending on how the person grips the bow naturally there's been times where i've put it in there and naturally they have a right tear uh, just based on how they grip and this is probably one out of 20 people so instead of me moving my arrow rest further out to the left which kind of gives you a weird optical illusion because when you're looking down the riser you can see that that arrow is kind of pointing left however if the person's natural hand torque twists the riser it's not like that at full draw but it rests that's what it appears so in order to compensate for that like with an ntn the easy fix is to remove the cams take that thin washer that's next to the thick on the right side of the cam and just move that thin washer over to the left so now you have a medium size and a thin size on one side and the thick on the other and then boom instantly cured you can still have your arrow rest right down the pipe all is good uh works awesome but you do have to remove the cam system to do that and again most of the systems out there that have some type of a split yoke like on the primes those split as well and come over to dual tracks um but with this system you can actually yoke tune which is super convenient and super helpful so it's helpful to the dealer it's also helpful to the at home bow shop person as well so hopefully that answered that question all right the next question is from kyle gillis underscore archery asking thoughts on the new four millimeter axis arrows so honestly my thoughts on those particular arrows regardless of brand are simply going to be when i look at an arrow i have to look at all aspects of that arrow and how it's going to relate to archery and accuracy um and from my point of view one of the things that I have to factor into every single one of those equations is that right now, especially with a four millimeter arrow, that's an arrow that's going to be very specific to me using in a hunting situation. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm probably not going to go out and just shoot a target archery, um, a target course or set up a target archery specific bow with a four millimeter hunting specific arrow shaft um, like the one that you're referring to but if i'm doing anything that's relating to what that arrow is designed for which is going to be hunting so even if i was setting it up on like a total archery challenge bow or attack event bow where i was going to practice with that and kind of have it as training leading up to hunting for me i have to factor in a lighted knock because i i love lighted knocks um i love them during practice i love them when it comes to uh giving all of you like videos or content i feel like anytime that arrow has a tracer 
on it or a lighted knock on it and you can see that flight, I just feel like it has way more importance to it. Um, and like, I don't know. It just seems like archery is cooler when you can see the arrow fly. That's kind of a big part that I've always loved is just the flight of the arrow. So for me, a lighted knock just makes that so much better. So one of the things that I feel like affect accuracy is on a four millimeter arrow, that component system in the back of the arrow is just so small because even though they have really, they have better um, systems now when it comes to like how the broadhead actually connects. I was never a fan of the, um, like the deep six system. I was never a fan of like thinner threads on a broadhead or smaller threads. So even though there's now like a half out system to where, even though that it it encapsulates the arrow shaft really good and you can use a standard, uh, thread size for the broadhead. So you don't have to worry about weakness there. All that is awesome. But the reality is I still have to think of what's happening on the back of that four four millimeter shaft, which what's happening is I'm putting a lighted knock in there, which needs to have a battery. It needs to have that on and off switch. And there's just a lot of things that go on back there. So for me, I shoot lighted knocks. I have to look at how does that factor into accuracy if your knock has play, if your knock is a little bit flimsy, or if that, if the material of the knock has some flexibility to it, it's going to affect accuracy. And the more poundage you shoot, or the longer that arrow is getting thrusted by the string, the more all that starts to magnify and come into effect when it comes to accuracy. So what I've found is that if I have a four millimeter shaft and I shoot a standard knock that comes on those Easton four millimeters, it, they shoot awesome. The accuracy is great. I love how they shoot. However, if I put any type of lighted knock system on the back to where once it has that battery, once it has a little bit longer knock itself, just because of how that has to connect, I just feel like I can bend it and it seems like it has a little bit more flexibility to it, which flexibility on longer draw length and on heavier poundage quickly magnifies to less accuracy so what I've done was I'll shoot them with the standard knock and then shoot them with the lighted knock and if there's variation in accuracy between the two it's simply not um, a choice for me so the bottom line is for me personally I feel like the five millimeter is giving me the best of both worlds which is a smaller diameter shaft still with heavy weight and the ability to put in heavier front weight. So with the brass hit system, I can put in 50 grains or 75 grains in the front. I can also use an X knock on the back of the shaft, which is by far my favorite. 
Um, it gives me the ability to put more fletchings on the back and still have enough clearance around the radius of that shaft to where my fletching isn't running into itself. So in other words, depending on like the size of the base of your vein, obviously on a four millimeter shaft, it's much smaller around. So um, you're way more likely to have the base of those veins touch each other, especially if you're shooting anything over a three fletch. So I'm just a big um, advocate. I'm very pro five millimeter because when I factor in all the pros and cons, the five millimeter just really allows me to shoot multiple fletch, 2.5 degree helical, standard front broadhead threads. I also have the ability for um, multiple front weight options, whether it's, you know, a standard aluminum insert or a 50 or 75 grain brass insert. Um, if you really wanted to get crazy, you could always double them up, um, which I don't think would be wise. And then obviously, you know, just the type of knock that's able to go in the back to where you're able to, to hold that accuracy, I think are just absolutely critical. Um, okay. Next question here is from Alfred text. He's saying the wrist rocket back tension release, and there's other people liking that reply too. So yes, I did launch a teaser about a brand new product coming from knock on, um, which is a wrist strap index finger tension release. Um, so the name of this product is going to be the back strap. This is a name that we actually have trademarked. Um, I've used this name on a product in the past. Um, it was an, it was a product that I had named in the past. And I think one of the things that's critical and really important for all of you listening to the podcast is it's important for all of you to know that yes, when it comes to our releases, um, I rely on the quality and the dependability of Carter releases. All of you need to know, and if you've ever listened to any of the older podcasts, maybe you've put two and two together to know that um, Jerry and I, Jerry Carter and I, and Jerry's wife, April, his son, Forrest, um, we've, we've worked together for a long, long time. Jerry was um, one of my very first sponsors when I shot competitively. And honestly, when I first started competing, I was not old enough to rent a car for, I think the first six years that I competed, I could not rent a car. So, um, Jerry made this agreement with me to where if I would drive him to and from events, and if I would, um, hang out and help Carter in and help him sell Carter releases in the booth, that he would fly me to the shoots and he would rent a car. And, um, he was pretty much like, you know, my, just kind of my, my, my big dad at the archery events. So, um, that's how it started. This is probably, I was thinking about the other day, 
1997 um, or 98 all the way until today. So 22 years I've been with Jerry in April. Um, a lot of their kids were born and babies at events when I was there um, with them. They were just always really close. And when I left um, Matthews in back in 2006, uh, Jerry was actually the very first person to hire me um, to help them with with marketing and also uh, facilitating their pro staff and helping them with their ad buys and also their product development. So all the way back, honestly, even back to um, the very first evolution, the evolution release was a product that I had asked Jerry about several times because I told him that in my coaching events that I was doing on international travel, I kept saying, I really, all I'm trying to teach people is how to activate a shot by pulling. I'm not like the hinge release is complicating things because people are afraid to pull it back. And, you know, it's like a lot of times if people are punching the trigger, I can never get them to get their finger to the trigger before they start pulling. And so I told Jerry, if, man, if there was, if we could have a release to where, all they had to do was just keep pulling back until that release was a total surprise. And honestly, Jerry came to me one day and he said, I think I can do it. And he gave me the very first prototype of what then was the evolution. And then obviously that release came out. I did the very first video for Carter. So if you go on YouTube and and Google or go on YouTube and search for John Dudley Carter Evolution, you're going to see me with a sweet vanilla ice spiked up hairdo and, you know, shooting Robin Hoods with this tension release that no one knew what the heck it was and i was doing a video at my home range in wisconsin um, on how to use a tension activated release and that whole marketing thing was based on this style of coaching that i just believed in which was tension activation not hand movement, not aiming, not making a fist. It was all based on just pulling harder on the wall. And so then the evolution made some progresses. And then honestly, after that, um, the release that I shot a lot personally was a just cause release. And with that just cause release, which is a handheld release, I told Jerry, I would love to have this in a two finger version, pretty much based on an old release that Jerry had years and years ago that never really went anywhere called a two special, um, which I have. I bought every one of those that I could find anywhere in the world. I think I got like 10 of them. I was able to buy them from all over the world. Um, they were all like a multicolor anodizing and that is a release that I shot for the majority of my professional career. People saw me with this two finger release. No one could get them. They didn't have them. They really didn't know what they were. And then finally, Jerry made me a two finger version of the just cause. And he called it the dud, which I have two of them. And that was a release that I shot. 
And he kind of said, you know, should I make those and we could sell those? And I said, well, the name's definitely a killer. No one's going to buy something if it's just called the dud. Obviously, it's a terrible marketing idea. So then we kind of went down the road and Jerry was saying, you know, we were looking at new releases, what should come out new. And I loved the release that Jerry came out with years prior called a chocolate addiction because the chocolate addiction was an auto closing release. So when you cocked it, it closed automatically. So I told Jerry, we have to come up with a release that's going to be a better seller than the just cause. And I said, the only thing that just cause needs that would make it better would be if it closed when you cocked it. So, um, and I told him like, that would be the best choice we could do. And so Jerry ended up making a release that when you cocked it, it auto closed, which was the wise choice based off our conversation. And so I made the logo, I made the ads for the very first wise choice release. And that release was out. That's a release that I used. I also used the simple one because I wanted, I actually liked a release where the, the jaw came opened up a little bit closer to my finger position. So then the simple one came out and then obviously there came a time where I told Jerry, I said, everyone's asking about this two finger release that I have can you make me enough and I can offer some to sell? So Jerry said, well, I can't just make some two finger releases. Like if we turn the machines off and we retool and we make all these fixtures, like we're going to have to sell X amount. So then I just said, well, if you're going to do it, can I tell you exactly what I would want and we can make it exactly like mine and thus became the knock to it, which was based on the two special, the dud, the wise choice, which was, you know, an auto closing just cause, and then came the knock to it, which, you know, had a different cocking lever, changed the change the back end of the release to fully contain the spring system, which I always wanted to see different anyway, and then gave the ability to either have the second finger on or hang the third finger on. And then the silverback series started, right? So, and that was based off going way back to this evolution that I talked about, which again, you can, you can Google John Dudley Carter evolution and see the very first coaching video on tension activation. And once this new Silverback Plus was designed, so the new Silverback Plus, the new Silverback Mini, what I wanted different about those and what I wasn't happy with on the original Silverback um, was the fact that the two releases, when you laid them on top of each other, there was still a very, very slight variation. So, and I also really wanted, and this kind of spurs back to um, John Barklow loves having a lanyard hooked to his release. He shoots silverbacks. That's all he shoots. And he had his lanyard kind of looked looped through the back hole of his safety trigger, which I personally didn't like because I wanted it attached to the release itself. 
The problem was we couldn't put a lanyard hole through the release because on the original Silverbacks, the spring system or the ITS system went through the back of the release and it needed to come out the back of the release to change the spring. So I talked to Jerry about, is there a way we can make a lanyard system? Is there a way, you know, we can not have to have something through the back? And then Jerry ended up coming up with this idea of, I think I have a whole new way to do the tension activation on the silverback or the evolutions. So thus the silverback plus happened. And once that happened, and once I saw this new system, I realized now we can finally put a tension activation system into a wrist release that is the proper size and not this huge size like the very first tension activated index finger releases that that Carter did years ago it was much too big much too bulky wasn't user friendly felt really weird to anchor etc I really felt like if it could be an index finger that was the same size as what everyone's used to right now in the market. And if we could have a really good wrist strap, which I've licensed uh, the wrist strap itself through uh, True Glow, who has a patent on that wrist strap in the BOA system, they're actually making our wrist straps, which is awesome. The new head is about a third smaller of like a like mic, um, which was a recommendation that I had. And then now this new system is really cool because you can go from like nine to 40 pounds with one spring system. You don't have to change the spring system uh, for different poundage bows. And you also don't have to remove the cartridge for that spring system, which is what allowed the new backstrap to have a patent pending system internally that actually has an internal trigger pivot. So the way the new backstrap works is you'll draw it back just like you would a standard wrist strap release. You'll actually squeeze the trigger with your index finger, which takes the travel out um and also disengages the safety so it's safe if your finger's not on the trigger it's safe pulling it back or letting it forward just like any other index finger release you've ever shot if you squeeze the trigger the safety disengages or is off and at that point all you have to do is continually pull against your back wall to a preset poundage which you've decided whether that's more or less and that release is going to go off with a total surprise once you've built that tension onto the back wall now one of the things that's cool is um and i guess one of the things that i don't publicly talk about all the time but i do love shooting um i love shooting precision rifles i love for shooting precision ars and precision pistols um i have some really cool setups that i've had customized from from rogue tactical so if you're a a gun person out there and you want to just get stupid with custom guns um like on instagram go to buy rogue tactical um and you'll see some pretty awesome stuff one of the things is 
they typically upgrade all those AR triggers to a custom trigger system, which most of the good ones are a two-stage trigger. So I like having the ability to take that slack out. And then I know from there on any pull, I'm pretty much ready to go. So um, you can really treat this wrist strap release the exact same. And there's so many people that are military that are coming into archery. I felt like this is such a perfect transition because I can say, okay, for this wrist strap release for the back strap, this is a, um, it's a two stage. So pull the slack out when that trigger stops, you're ready to then start pulling and once you pull that additional amount onto the back wall, that release is going to fire. Works freaking awesome. This is going to be a total industry changer. It's going to allow people to come into archery and say, okay, here's your wrist strap release. You put this on, tighten it down. And the dealer um, or the person can set it up to depend on how much pulling weight they want once they've taken the safety off to fire. But they'll draw back. They'll go ahead and take that you know just treat it like a two-stage trigger take stage one out and then continue to pull on the back wall until they get a perfect surprise shot um, as of right now that launch is scheduled for new year's day 2021 uh, for the backstrap so right now we've got uh, you know patents pending uh, name trademarked we're good to go. Uh, we've got product that we're pre-building so that we hopefully don't sell out too fast. I know that we're probably limited on supply and demand. And regardless of what we do ahead of time to try to combat that, the reality is we just have a really amazing community. And there's more of you out there supporting what we're doing than what any of us or our suppliers are able to constantly keep up with. So bear with us on that. And I can tell you a huge focus of mine isn't just on this wrist strap version. There's going to be a huge focus this year on curing target panic. The new season of school of knock is based on target panic and curing uh, buck fever, freezing beneath the target. And this is really a series that isn't like, this isn't something where you're just going to watch it and you're going to be like, okay, pull your bow back, do this, and you're fixed. Pull your bow back, do this, you're going to be fixed. This is this is actually a very methodical, broke-down series that lets me talk to you as if I were talking to an archer that's in front of me that I know is dealing with something that is super frustrating it's completely deflated them. They're at their wits end about, you know, archery in general. They're ready to quit and they don't know what to do about it. And regardless of like what type of programs or methods are out there on the market, this is something that I'm 100% sold on the fact that I've coached target panic. I've coached tension activation. I've touched, I've coached, you know, 
target anxiety, buck fever, freezing beneath the target. This is something that I've been coaching and coaching on a very high level for almost two decades. Like there's people out there now and in recent years that are coaching on these subjects, but the reality is I have no idea where these people even were within our archery community when I was doing the methods that I personally believe in to super high level archers, teams, bow hunters, etc. So I haven't deviated from my method of talking and explaining. And I know sometimes when people listen to this podcast, I do talk slow. I do talk methodical. Um, but that's also how I coach. And a lot of times when I'm talking in front of people, which is way more often than I'm talking to a microphone, I'm talking at a rate that I'm based off what the crowd is absorbing and what that person is absorbing and thinking and processing. So a lot of my mannerism or a lot of my speed or tone is just based on years and years and years of a teaching practice. So this season of School of Knock, season three, that's based on curing target panic and buck fever, um, it utilizes these tension-based releases in a program that allows you to go through a a four-session program that doesn't necessarily allow you to rush through the things that I've personally seen are imperative to these principles sticking and becoming becoming a habit, not a placebo. So hopefully that works out for you. Um, the back strap, 100% is a wrist strap activation or wrist strap tension activation. You can also back the screw out um, to its weakest setting. And then as you squeeze that trigger, it'll actually fire as you're squeezing the trigger. Um, So you can set it up to where it actually fires once you're starting to pull on it. Um, So if you're someone who just firmly believes I need to have full control of my shot if I'm going hunting or something like that, you can take your same release you can adjust it. You know, if you count the amount of turns, you back it out until you get that feel that you want. So when you start to squeeze the trigger, it's firing. Um, you could certainly do that. So you don't have to rely on tension activation, uh, during a hunting moment, but I think that this is going to be an awesome addition to the handheld releases, which let it be known. I'm still a very, pro handheld release person. Um, I personally don't like things on my wrists. I don't like hunting with things that are in any way around my hands. So I, I really like a handheld release. And I just, from my years as a competitive archer, I love the consistency of just grabbing a two finger release. Um, but there's a ton of you out there that love a wrist strap and believe me i shot one for my first decade of of archery so i get it and i'm 100 percent confident that this is the best one ever made Uh, there's no question to it i've shown some of my closest friends um actually this has been a project for almost a year 
Um, I showed one of the early prototypes, for example, to uh, Bill Pellegrino um, in back in the summer. And Bill has called me more in the last six months than he's called me my entire life because he's like, when can I freaking get that thing? He wants to shoot it in Vegas. Um, it's going to just completely change how archery is taught to people. And it's, it's such a powerful tool, really pumped with it. So I'm, uh, I'm excited about it. And again, it's called the backstrap, uh, trademark patent pending. And yeah, it's going to be freaking super cool. So that's where we're at. All right, let's move on to another question. Um, let's see. Well, there was another one here from Justin ATX was saying, tell me about your new release. I want to hear about it. Having a precision rifle background, the wrist release is still so much more natural for me. So yeah, that's answering the question. Okay. Um, so captain Jake Brooks is asking hunting setup for women. So for this one, the only one I can really speak about in relation to, I have history and experience in that category would be for my wife, Sharon. So, uh, Shaz shoots anywhere from 40 to 45 pounds and she shoots a tension activator release. She only shoots a silverback mini. That's all she's ever shot. And for Sharon and also for my son, Harry, when, um, when he was shooting kind of in that same realm, because Sharon has a shorter draw length, uh, 26 inches, again, 40 to 50 pounds, depending on like how much she's shooting or what we're going for. Um, but she shoots either an axis 600 or an axis 500 depending on that poundage um if she's shooting closer to 40 pounds she'll shoot the 600 otherwise the 400 now for her and harry as well what i decided to do because one if you're a slightly shorter draw length archer um you're gonna have less speed if you're a lower poundage archer you're gonna have less speed even more right so what i've done is sharon shoots a slightly shorter brace height than i do and anytime there's been like quote unquote like a speed model available to where there's not too much speed gain compared to accuracy lost um I'm not comfortable going like under six inches for a brace height, but I'm okay with a six inch brace height when you're that short of a draw length or that low of a poundage. But because the brace height on her model is a little shorter, then what happens is when you knock your arrow and you have your arrow on that rest, when your bow is at rest, um, so whether this is like a QAD rest where you flip it up and it's in the up position, or if it's a knock on elevate rest where your arrow holder is flipped up and it's just holding the arrow between there, what you'll find is when that brace height is shorter, your fletchings are that much shorter or that much closer 
to the fingers holding that rest in the up position. Now, because of that, if she had a three or a four inch fletching, the fletchings would actually be stuck in that rest that's in the up position or that arrow holster that's in the up position. So what I've done is I've went to a shorter fletching, which allows the rest to be in an up position and my arrow shaft is sitting in between those fingers without the fletching binding in there. Um, but since that fletching is shorter, I've added more fletch to it so that my total surface area is the same. So for Sharon, I have a six fletch of a pro max vein. So it's, you know, a, a little low profile. It's under two inches. It's a, I would call it a medium profile. It's not a low profile, but it's a medium profile vein. It's under two inches. And so instead of me having uh, a three inch mid profile, like in a mat, a pro, um, in like a max stealth, then what I've done is I've just done a six fletch with the pro max. So instead of me having three veins or four, you know, let's just say three veins that are three inches, I now have six veins that are, you know, roughly, I don't know. I guess they're one seven five each and a little bit lower profile. So the total surface area when it comes to like how that arrow's spinning and how quick it's controlling itself coming out of the bow, I feel like I'm equal. One thing I will say is like having a six fletch like that, you know, it spins really fast. So at the past the mid range it'll start to decelerate faster and lose its accuracy but the reality is Sharon can really only get sight clearance to about 60 yards anyway um, before she's having to like kind of compensate so I feel like that fletching combination is perfect for her now on the front um, she's always shot either like a muzzy trocar or a Montac or something similar to where, you know, it's 100% a fixed blade head, cuts really fast, um, you know, a little bit smaller overall cutting diameter, only a three blade cutting, uh, only three blades cutting. Um, and she's had really good luck. Everything from uh, turkeys all the way up to as large as a kudu or wildebeest, um, she's been fine with that setup. So, uh, if you're trying to build something for a shorter profile person, check that out. If you want to know how to do a six fletch, um, all you have to do is set your jig to where you're fletching three, uh, fletch your three arrows as you normally would after you fletch your last arrow or your third vein, or your, sorry, after you fletch your third vein, uh, loosen your clamp remove the arrow out of the jig, rotate it 180 degrees, and set it back down in there uh, so your knock fits properly in that channel. Again, once you've rotated 180 degrees, now if you just start fletching again, those three fletches will fit perfectly between the last three that you did, giving you the three fletch, or the six fletch. So uh, it's a cool way to do it. 
and works awesome. Anything mid-range or shorter, you're going to have good control and also really good range, um, good clearance to the arrow rest if you do have that shorter brace height. Uh, next question here is for Parker Cup 03 saying, um, trying to hunt Iowa coming from Michigan. In your opinion, is it worth trying to wait to get extra preference points for a better section um, or just try to get a tag and get anywhere? Um, honestly, here in Iowa, um, gosh, it's a tough question because before I moved to Iowa, I actually um, just wanted to hunt other states than where I lived in Wisconsin because when I worked at Matthews for those nine years, I lived in Wisconsin. Uh, we kind of had that one tag. And once that was filled, we were over, kind of over with. And the very first property I bought was like three acres. And then the second property I bought was 10, I think. Um, and honestly, once I kind of got my own farm, my ability to strike really fast and get something down in the very first few weeks of season was pretty probable. I was really good about low pressure, finding either food cover or water, something that the deer needed that they didn't have close by. I would find that one thing. I would have like really low pressure, be super particular about one I got in a stand and only get in a stand if I thought I had a shot. And I would fill tags pretty dang um, efficiently. And so I would quickly want to hunt another state um, to just be able to be out in the woods. So for several years there, I hunted a unit in Iowa that was much easier to draw. It was like every other year versus every five or back then it was probably only every three. Then, then like this unit where I'm in now is now four. And then now I think they've said that it's even up to five for some people. So, um, I did really well in the unit that didn't take as much to draw, but one of the things that you have to realize with that, um, and this is true actually in some other states that I hunt as well, um, some of the other states that I hunt, I draw tags that I can get every other year, but the reality is to find the right places within those areas that are every other year it's like those good spots are a smaller concentration within those areas that are easier to draw so you really have to do your homework you have to be friends with the right people or knock on the right doors and like do everything possible to where if you draw the units that are easier to draw, you're hunting the best areas within those units. And those unit, those little spots, like there's spots within spots, those can be as good as a general area within an, another zone that's much harder to draw. So if you can get the pockets within the pockets, 
then you're good to go. Like if you know someone that's like, Hey, I'm in zone two and I'm just using that because that's actually the zone that, that, um, I used to hunt back when I was a out of stater and I could draw that every other year easy, then that was awesome. Or here's another example. It's much easier in Iowa to get a late season tag um, because you can use a late muzzleloader season tag for an archery hunt, which is what I'm using. I told you like today is the opener of uh, late muzzleloader season, but I can use a bow um, instead of a muzzleloader. I know those tags are much easier to get, but the reality is with that, if you don't have that cold weather or if you don't have the ability to, if you get a call saying, oh crap, there's snow coming in two days, can you get here? Like if you don't have the ability to just, to move in a two day notice um, to where the wind's right or weather system comes in, or for that matter, if you have permission to hunt a place here in Iowa um, and he's, and that person says, well, you can hunt here. You know, I've got 500 acres, um, you know, feel free to come down and look at it. And if you go down there and it's just all huge hardwoods, well, that's going to be very hit or miss in the late season. Whereas if you call that person and they say, yeah, you you know, you're more than welcome to come. Um, you know, I don't have much for timber there. There is some timber, but you know, we're kind of really ag and you go there and t- that landowner ends up saying, yeah, I'll, I'll leave you two acres of standing corn. Well, that's a whole different situation because during the late season, if you have food, that's where you want to be. Even if the cover is a mile away, those deer could move, could travel a mile easy. So a lot of what would cause me to make a decision one way or another for that situation would be one, do I have the right space, the right spot within that space that's easier to draw? If the question is no, I'm just going on public land, that would be really tough. I had to drink something. I know it bugs some people, but my throat's getting dry. Um, Or like I said, if you've got a place where that landowner has good food source for late season, you can get a late season tag much easier than any of the others, but you have to have food. And in some cases you have to have the right weather conditions, but if you can have that, man, you can actually take advantage of getting way more tags you could draw twice the tags in iowa if you found the right place to go during the late season and come here and get a muzzleloader tag um and be on food Ooh, i was thirsty um all right next question glad to be nice glad to be nico 92 glad to be nice would have been a good one but uh question any public land mobile hunting or scouting strategies um so that's a subject 
that for me it gets tough because there was a time where I hunted a lot of public land and I also was very mobile. I mean, I've got tons of the tons of original. Um, I think I have like one of the first old man climbing stands. It was actually made with like a garden hose. Um, my uncle got it somewhere down in Mississippi or Louisiana back when they were just kind of selling them at a small little store. And my, you know, before that climber, I actually had, uh, and I still do, I have a set of climbing spurs um, from just a old telephone worker, telephone pole worker. I had a pair of climbing spurs and I had like an old, um, one of those first API um, lock-ons that had like a tree bark seat and, you know, just kind of had a buckle that went around it. It was like a seat belt buckle type thing. And that's how I did a lot of hunting. And I don't know, the hard thing for me on this subject, especially right now, is how popular public hunting is getting to the point where I have friends that that actually loved hunting public land just because they didn't they didn't have the time to like put into helping a landowner or they didn't have money for to try to lease a property or anything like that and they just they just went on public all the time because public was good and honestly here in Iowa um, the public hunting was really good and still is good in relation to like if you rate it to some other places but also there comes a point where you have to realize there's so many people that want to do it that even though it's awesome to say this is a public land buck or this is a public land whatever um or a public land elk or, or anything. And, and trust me, I try, I try every year to like go back to my roots and do that. And I've, I have done that and I continue to do that. Um, but it's, it's a lot like this. When I go, when I go to BC or Alberta and I hunt on crown land, which I would say, 80% 80% of the stuff I hunt is crown land. So it's, it's public hunting. It, I mean, you can see anybody out there and I, and, and I run into people and, and so many of the things that you've seen me shoot in Canada are all from, it's all from public land. It's not private land. Um, but it's like, that's what it used to be like here back when I was just, going around and um honestly back in back in 2006 or 8 I can't really remember one of those two years um when I left Matthews I I just I had three months severance pay and I just decided I wanted to just I put everything I had in a truck and I just I said, I'm just going to drive. I'm going to drive to the first state where I can buy an over-the-counter tag and I'm going to buy an over-the-counter tag and I'm just going to go hunt public. And if I'm not on the public, I'm going to go into diners or I'm going to go to a co-op and I'm just going to get permission and I'm just going to, I'm going to, I'm going to hunt from 
September 1st to October 1st, I'm going to hunt everywhere I can get a tag or everywhere I can knock on a door and go. And that's what I did. And honestly, that became the DVD, which started my TV career, I guess, um, which was called D&D Bowhunting. And that whole first DVD was, uh, which was called The Cutting Edge, that was all like me packing my truck with some severance pay and just going hunting. But guys, it was so different 14 years ago. It was like so different. I mean, my buddy Caleb went to Idaho to a place where I hunted during that same year that I did that DVD, same year hunted public land, went to the same spot and couldn't even get a parking spot in a camping ground because of how many people were there. And it's just, it's getting tough because there's, there's like this huge push to public hunting, which is awesome because hopefully these are all new archers rushing to hunting and, and they don't know where to go yet. But the reality is as much as I want to answer questions to public hunting the more people that go in there it gets so hard because i have people here that are like part of our team that believe me they listen to they listen to all the podcasts about you know trad archery and public hunting and how cool that is and all that but the reality is it's like take a weekend off and bang on doors take a weekend off don't hunt public land and like go do some chores for someone like do a side job and get 500 bucks and offer someone with pub with private land, the ability to like have some hunting where you don't have to worry about strategy because strategy is so hard for me to answer when there's 10 people going into the same piece. There was eight cars parked in this piece that, when I moved here to this area 10 years ago, I went and hunted and had an awesome hunt and killed deer and everything. And it was freaking awesome. And then fast forward 10 years, there's eight cars in the same piece. And it's like, at that point, I don't know what I can tell you because as much as I want to say, you know, get there before anyone else. It's like, now there's people that just, come in mid morning and you know, they'll see you there and they'll just start calling and you know, it, it gets so hard to, to give you strategy other than like get, get away from the people that apply pressure hunt when there's the least amount of pressure. I mean, if I was to give you advice, it would be this. And this is the advice that like I gave people here that, that, you know, are, are part of our team that hunt public it's like save your vacation time and try to be on your public hunting Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, you know, don't, don't be there. Don't be there. Then make sure you're not coming out. The mass majority is going to come out mid morning. You have the better part. Then another thing to keep in mind is a lot of people are gung-ho at the beginning and the longer things go on, the more people start to fall off the bus. So 
a lot of their best hunting was actually post like quote unquote prime time rut times. So if that's all you had, I would say, okay, there's, there's a very good time of year to hunt and it's not necessarily right during the rut. Like, okay, for here, I would say if I was to pick, if I was to pick 10 days that I would hunt all day, every day in Iowa, it would be, I would say the 4th to the 14th, maybe the 5th to the 15th. That would be my 10 if I were to pick. Now, if I'm going to pick that, a lot of other people are going to pick that too. So the question is, if everybody that gets two weeks vacation or 10 days is going to be there from the 5th to the 10th, then I would say, I would tell you, okay, the next best times, which are highly underrated, are going to be the week leading up to Halloween. Um, for sure, super productive. Less people, people are probably not going to take off the whole day. Those would be dynamite times to be out all day. Otherwise, following that, like Thanksgiving week, obviously not on Thanksgiving or that weekend, but I would say Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, leading up to Thanksgiving, most people are going to be at work during those times. Um, those would be good times because here in the Midwest, a lot of deer of bread and a lot of bucks are totally roaming during that time. And, and honestly, um, some of our team here saw their biggest deer during the week of Thanksgiving, uh, just total cruisers. So, <clears throat> and Sharon killed her biggest buck in Iowa, uh, the five days prior to gun season. So almost a month following rut. So look for those times a year where there's not going to be as many people there but you still have the ability to see good deer and that would be a good option. I'm going to cough for a second. Okay. Didn't want to risk COVID. So I couldn't cough on you. Just kidding. But my mouth and my throat is getting dry from several hours of talking without anyone here to help me, but that's how we're doing it. Let's see. Okay, we got ooh several people asking, and I'll leave this. I'm gonna make, I'm gonna do another podcast with the remainder of these questions, but this will be my last answer for this first podcast um, of the two, and this is coming from Kyle the Birdman, and then there's a bunch of people that seconded his. Well, they seconded it, they dittoed it, and they thriced it. And that question is, caring for and cleaning a bow after a hunt in the rain or snow? This is an awesome question because obviously it happens to all of us. And what I do, come home, as soon as it's rainy and nasty, what you want to do is... Uh, take that bow, wipe it down with a paper towel or, or a chamois, <coughs> and 
what I do, I actually have a spot in my house. It's in kind of my quote unquote mud room or washing machine room. I can set it a few feet away from the main vent that's in there in the room. And then I close the slider door so that that room is kind of encapsulated. And there's kind of not direct heat, but very close moving air heat close to that bow to where it's going to be able to dry it off before it, it's going to dry off faster than it just kind of like evaporates off. So if you remove most of that moisture with, uh, with a paper towel or a towel or a chamois, you're going to prevent a lot of like rusting and that sort of thing. But the number one deal is just don't leave it in your truck. Don't, you know, Leave, leave it outside in your garage or, you know, in the bow case. Leave it in the bow case is the worst. And trust me, my brother Dusty up in BC, that sucker is the worst for leaving his bow in the bow case. Hopefully he hasn't done that with his new one. But his old one, I remember opening his bow case one time and there was like water in his bow case. And obviously, if you live up in Canada, you know, it's it's wet and miserable. And especially if you do a moose hunt, you know that that's just inevitable. But you really want to expose that bow to some indirect air movement and limited heat. Uh, If you're on a backpack hunt, you know, try if you're in a tent, try to make sure you take your string uh, like if you have a bow sling or like string protectors, like say the, uh, the Sika bow sling, make sure you take that off so that your string isn't in everything underneath it, just sitting there totally soaked while, you know, and especially cause it covers the cams because you want your cams and you want your axles and everything to, to dry off. So if it's possible, you know, if you have some heat, try to, you know, if you're in a tent or something, just try to get it up a little bit higher. You know, don't put it right over your camp stove, but get it to where that that heat is is warm enough and it's moving enough to dry off clothing because that's what you need. For me, like I said, if it's raining, I take my bow, bring it inside, prop it up right next to a vent. A lot of times... If it was really nasty and I was just getting totally saturated, I'll come in, take, you know, take a lot of my clothes off. Um, I'll take my boots. I'll pull the soles out of my boots. I'll put my boots kind of upside down, but butted up to each other on top of an air vent. And then a lot of times I'll just lay my soles on top of what is the bottom of my boot because they're upside down. Um, And so they're angled, so they kind of run out and the radiant heat coming up through that boot is enough to dry out that that insole. And then a lot of times I'll prop my bow up a foot or two away from that um, to where it's able to to be right close to that air. And maybe for a little while you put it somewhat close to that vent just to get some air air airflow on it. Um, Otherwise, a hairdryer 
works good. Just be careful around your strings. You know, you want to just, you really want to get like a lot of your accessories, your arrow rests, your sight. You want to get them warm enough to where that condensation comes off of, especially when it's really cold. Um, and it's not going to just cause all that stuff to rust. If you can get it to dry off fast enough, you're not going to have near the rusting on a lot of your micro adjustments, or you won't have to worry about like your arrow rest sticking in that down position. Now, one thing I'll tell you is if you're, if you have to do that a lot, you'll start to notice your string start to fuzz a little bit. And once you notice your string really starting to fuzz, then that's a really good time to be able to put um, a light coat of wax on that string and take a piece of leather, like a leather finger tab or something like that, and just rub it really hard and melt that leather or that wax into that string with that leather. Um, you know, the friction just melts it and like gets it to penetrate deeper in there, which is really critical because the wax prevents your string from like absorbing as much of that moisture, you know, that's possible. It'll, it'll prevent that. The, the drier your string is, the more it'll absorb and the more it absorbs, the slower it's going to be, you know, it's going to have more weight to it, which is going to slow it down. So your arrow will be slower and it'll start to change your impact. So by having that wax in there, just, the consistency of the weight of that string will be much better and your accuracy is going to be much better as well. Now, if you feel like you've gone on a hunt where you've just had a bunch of terrible weather uh, and you know that that bow is just kind of taking a beating, um, you can see you haven't been able to fully dry it out to your best ability um, and you're showing signs of like wear or creaking. Um, and honestly, sometimes it's not necessarily the, the rain that's hard. Like for me up in BC, um, honestly, Alberta seems worse, but Alberta and, um, Alberta and certain parts of Utah have like this, I call it moon dust. It's just this dust that's so fine that it just seems to get places and that dust like this winter I was doing some shooting during a practice round and my bow which was my total archery challenge bow from the summer I'd done five weeks on the road with that bow it had been in the back of a side-by-side -side and in the back of my truck for like five straight weeks at all these things and just getting all this moon dust on it and as much as I wiped it down, it just like worked its way into the limb pockets and stuff. So when I draw back, I'd have this little creak. And so I kind of said on during one of those live practice rounds, you know, I need to, to take this apart and lubricate some stuff. And so if it gets to the point where you feel like, you know, things have been excessively watered down um, stuff has started to rust, you know, that you've been in like some of that moon dust type stuff. That's just the time where your strings start to look like they're just, they're frayed. And even though you wax them, they just, they just immediately look frayed the next day again. That's just a really good time to do like a, I call it a bover haul. And maybe that's a good series I should do where you just replace strings and cables, 
take those axles out of your cams, take your cams out, really try to get in there with Q-tips and clean out all the dust out of there. Um, really try to clean your axles and maybe put just a light, light, super light coat of, of lubricant on those axles. If there's any sign of rust on them, just you know, get new replacement axles. Um, and then just putting a little bit of white lithium grease um, on your limb pocket connections where your limb pockets or your rockers contact your limbs just having a little bit of lithium grease uh, right there or even graphite um, you know on those where your limbs pivot on the on the limb pockets or the rockers or where they seat into the pocket themselves all that stuff's critical even even just having a cheap uh, investment of replacing your roller slide or your carbon cable rod if you've had those where there's been dust or dirt or grime on there and they've been sliding back and forth and you've been doing hundreds of shots with essentially what's like sandpaper between that cable slide and your cable guard you'll start to see that wear and tear and once you've seen that it's just that's the time where you just need to replace that stuff and and move on so Hopefully you do the preventative to where you don't need that. But once you do need that, those are the things that seem critical and seem like they need to have a little bit of TLC. And once you do that, you should be good to go. So that's uh, part one, knock on podcast. I'll give you guys another podcast tomorrow, picking up where we left off on some of these Q&As. I'm pumped to be back. Hopefully, everyone out there has had an awesome year, enjoyed the hunting season. You're pumped for Christmas, coming up here in a few days, and fired up about archery. Knock on, everybody. Be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock-on lifestyle clothing. Knockonarchery.com.